If you're from Britain and you want to send me some tea, I would greatly appreciate that because I love Sean's tea. Sean's become quite the tea connoisseur. I really in like recent tea. Days. If you have any like Expert loose, teas. any loose tea, send that shit over to me. I promise I won't dump it in the Boston Harbor. I know that's probably still. I probably would. A but bit of a Sean fresh won't. wound. I will not dump your tea in the Boston Harbor. <laughs> if y'all can just send me videos of you talking, I'd love you. I love Prince <laughs> so much. Welcome back to Rule of Three. Woo! I am your host and spiritual guide, Sean Barber. I am here with our resident expert in death, Miss Nicole Jewett. Hello, everybody. And the man who knows nothing, Mr. Ethan Black. Always the same. So this episode <laughs> is the official start of season two of our show, and I am so excited to be back here making episodes again. I really miss doing this with you guys. I'm literally like, I can't even contain myself right now. Like, I feel like I could just scream. I'm so excited. My break was really boring not doing this show. Yeah. I got so used to doing this show every week that as soon as we got on break, I was like, should I be writing a script well, or something? What do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> I am excited. Wow, that was so wow, genuine. Very... Well, all right, here's the thing. Overbreak, I did the same thing I do for this podcast, which is nothing. That's true. You've got a point there. <laughs> I am literally, literally always constant. You've got a point there. Yeah. Overbreak, I did do one one thing. Yeah, and, so uh, everybody go listen to go it. Go share that shit. Because it was really good. I made Love a follow-through episode on Hans Holbein. It's pretty short. It's only like 13 minutes long, and I, I thought it was good, so. I was thoroughly entertained by it. If I was a little bit worried that it was going to be a different dynamic, but I think Sean did a very good job. <laughs> if so you haven't listened to it, it just go give it a listen, and if you really hate it, just turn off your volume <laughs> for 13 minutes and let it play in the background And just pretend we're desperate. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode is our most ambitious script that we have ever done by far. Okay, probably. all right, all right. So I've heard. Listen, I'm excited. we say that every single week. For reference, our longest script ever at this point in time was the Christmas episode with 18 pages. This one's 20, and, and over half of it is one story. Yes. Yeah, so we're gonna do the the two short stories are gonna be first. Oh So my. make sure you stick around for the last story because it is a train ride and a half. We promise it's worth your time. It is very like worth we your swear. Time. But if you're a prick, just come halfway through that show and come back. We also for reference. This story was good enough for Clint Eastwood to make a movie out of it with Angelina Jolie as the star. It's, good so, like, it's a you. good story. It's good enough for Clint Eastwood. It's good enough for you. So He's make dead, sure you right? definitely stick around for the last story because it's it's going to rock your fucking world. Absolutely. It's going to knock your socks directly off of your feet. <laughs> Clean off. <laughs> or so, anywhere else you keep your socks. <laughs> <laughs> You're a fucking weirdo. This episode is all about corruption, with stories from Hampton, Florida, the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, and the LAPD Walter Collins scandal. After listening today, check us out on Instagram at Rule of Three 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 three, and on Facebook at the Rule of Three Podcast. We and swear we're gonna actually do Facebook yes. this time around. And after you listen, also make sure you drop us a rating or review wherever you're listening. I know Apple Podcasts has it, um, Spotify I don't think has it, but iHeartRadio has a rating system. And so, we're on iHeartRadio now, yeah. so mm-hmm. so give give us a review. Let us know what you think. It, I don't care if you give us one star. Let us know that we're we pieces of shit. We want to know. Yeah, but let us know why. We know that we're pieces of shit. We need to know why you think that. Constructive criticism. <laughs> so we can either change it or fight you. 
no, <laughs> show up that. at your house in the middle of the night with a baseball bat and be yeah, like, all right, post motherfucker, what's up? And follow up? it up with your address and just, just for <laughs> reference. All right. We have a huge script to get through today, so we actually need to kind of get chugging here. So <laughs> let's go. We've got three dumbass hosts, three crazy stories, and no fucking clue what we're doing. This is rule of three. Ethan, take it away, buddy. Shit. That's all I have for today. Not bad. A little That's fine. Old. My ears didn't bleed, so I consider that a success. It's called a town <laughs> shuffle. It is approximately 12 seconds, and you can do maybe one dance move to it. And yeah. Okay. All right, cool. Nice. Yeah. So, I'm going to start off this episode, a little refreshing Fuck change yeah, of pace. Fuck yeah, Nicole's going to start us. With a little bit of a story about PG&E. So, in 1952, the huge natural gas company, Pacific Gas and Electric, put in a gas compressor in Hinkley, California. A gas compressor is pretty straightforward. It's just a machine that keeps natural gases at their correct pressure while they move through the pipelines. They have to have these every, like, 40 to 100 miles to just maintain constant pressure in the pipes. This sounds innocent enough, but PG&E used a new type of anti-rusting agent on their equipment called hexavalent chromium that can cause cancer in large enough quantities. Jeez. For anyone who's interested in the scientific side of things, because I'm a nerd, I'm going to try to explain this to you as simple as I can. Chromium is an element on the periodic table, number 24 to be exact. Mm -hmm. And like many other elements, it can come in multiple forms depending on its oxidation state. Now, if you have no idea what the hell an oxidation state is, don't run away. I'm not trying to scare you. If you slept through your high school chemistry class, I'm going to break it down for you real simple. If you can recall, an element is made up of three things, the protons and neutrons in the nucleus and the electrons circling around it in what's commonly known as a shell. Each shell has only a certain capacity for electrons, so if the element has so many electrons that one shell fills up, electrons will simply just make a new outermost shell, which is called a valence shell, and start to fill that one. This will happen until all the electrons have a shell that they fit into, so one element could have many shells depending on the number of electrons it has to fill them. The valence shell is the only one that is important for our purposes, since that's where all the chemistry is happening. And as electrons are added or taken away, they can only come from the valence shell. It wouldn't make any sense to take an electron out of the inside shell when there are electrons already available right on the outside. Easy pickings. That's what we go for. Exactly. This brings us back to hexavalent chromium and what in the world that even means. Hexa, the Greek prefix meaning six, tells us that this particular form of chromium is missing six of the electrons in its valence shell. So yes, all of that bullshit I just spewed is a fancy way of saying that hexavalent chromium is just a form of chromium with a charge of positive six. Now, from what I've gathered, any chemist out there, please don't come for me. I'm a biologist. And we're both music majors, so you have no business. There's no fact checking here. This is all just <laughs> my understanding. <laughs> the reason hexavalent chromium is so dangerous is because it's structurally similar to sulfate. And because of this, it's able to essentially confuse cells into thinking it is a sulfate. So it will be transferred into the cell via sulfate transport channels. It's like a sleeper agent. Kind of. That's dope. from Russia. Once the hexavalent chromium is in the cell, it does a lot of super technical sciencey things that I don't even understand completely, and I'm not com- uh, what am I trying to say? Confident? I'm not qualified to talk about. Qualified. But long story short, it's able to damage the DNA stored in the cells and cause mutations in the genetic code, which is, you guessed it, exactly where cancer comes from. Now, if you don't think already that I'm the smartest person in the room, I just proved it. Mic drop. So I want to put you <laughs> on the spot real quick uh-huh. for a second. Ooh. Um and I, I'm it's I'm hoping I'm not asking a hard question here because I don't I don't think it's a hard question. But Roast her up. What is sulfate? Why why do we eh? honestly I don't really know. Right. I just know that it's something that is taken into your cells. I don't know like the specifics about what exactly it is. Okay, fair enough. I know it's sulfur based because it's sulf 
Very, very good. That's not necessarily I true, I don't think. Very, but, no, sulfate maybe is, good. It is? is? Okay, well, there you go. All right. I did my research on hexavalent chromium, not sulfate, so. That's fair. That's what I got for y'all. But bottom line is sulfate is needed by the body, so the hexavalent chromium, hexavalent chromium mm-hmm. can just kind of sneak on in there and fuck, fuck exactly. shit up. Exactly. So yeah. if you were able to at least follow that, you're fine. It's not vital information. I just thought that anyone that's interested would want to know. So They were using naughty stuff. For yeah, bad nerds. things. The compressor station had a lot of water cooling and pressurizing, so when the hexavalent chromium was washed off by the water and drained into evaporating pools that weren't lined properly, it went directly into the groundwater. However, PG&E didn't tell anyone that there was hexavalent chromium in the water and instead said it was trivalent chromium, a molecule that is not only completely safe, but something that we literally can't live without in our bodies. See, this is why science people are dangerous and scary, because they know what all of these words mean, and the rest of us have no <laughs> fucking clue. It's it's terrifying. The difference between hexa and tri is cancer or life. That's true. Yeah. Like, it literally is. That's a life or death yeah. prefix. Turns out three really is the magic number. <laughs> Rule of well, three. Well, you can literally add an oxygen and go from H2O to H2O2, which is hydrogen peroxide, and will kill you if you drink it, so... Science is scary. It is scary sometimes. That's, That's why we have to understand it's it. It's really easy to kill yourself with science. Oh, absolutely. Or kill others. If you others. look up like any university in the country, there is hardly ever one you can find that hasn't had an organic chemistry lab blow up. Well, yeah, are you kidding me? It's Oof. chemistry. Regardless of whether it's organic or not, mixing chemicals blow shit up. I don't think you know exactly PSA. what that means, but all right. I don't think he knows what it means at all. <laughs> um, Continue. So anyway, the people of Hinckley started living with this water, drinking it, bathing in it, everything you do with water, and they were none the wiser that they were slowly being poisoned. Normal water activity. <laughs> things, they were filling their pools with it, their kids were swimming in it. Polo. Like, water gunfights. Aerobics. Mm, water drownings, yoga. Tra- waterboarding. Yeah. If you didn't die from the waterboarding, you were going to die from the hexavalent <laughs> chromium. <laughs> So we have to jump a little bit in time because nothing really happens for a while. People are just living with the cancer water. And they have absolutely no idea. They have no idea. But in 1993, a young woman named Erin Brockovich was working in a law office in Southern California. Even though she had no previous law experience, that's a story for another day. We don't have time to get into her whole story. But just know that she's working at this law office, doesn't actually know what she's doing. Just like a secretary, like a little assistant. So she comes across a real estate transaction, which is perfectly normal. Anytime you're buying or selling a house, lawyers are involved. They come and sign paperwork. So this is totally normal. But this real estate transaction had some interesting medical documents attached to it, which is not very normal. So Aaron goes out to the house to see what's going on, and the owner of the house told her that PG&E was going to buy the house from her, and also that she and her husband both had cancer. But they were so thankful to PG&E for offering to buy their house, like they needed the money for the treatments, and the doctors Mm -hmm. were always free. So PG&E was supplying the woman and her husband with doctors free of charge which is not something you'd expect from, like, a natural gas company. A little suspect. People yeah. that had absolutely no reason. Like, why in the world would your gas company be providing you with a doctor? They have no obligation to do that. Yeah. Absolutely Aaron, none. Aaron was very suspicious of these findings and started to look at more of the real estate cases she had and discovered that PG&E was essentially buying up all the houses at Hinkley that they could. 
The people in the town, though, they loved PG&E. These were the people that were providing a lot of jobs to the community. They gave people free doctors and offered to buy their houses from them. These people were amazing. Aaron was the only one that was seeing that this was terrible. It's like the There's aliens something from Toy Story shady happening with here. the claw. Yeah, claw. just like the claw. <laughs> PG&E. <laughs> so Aaron went around the town and tried to convince people that they that they were getting taken advantage of by PG&E, but they wouldn't listen to her. After failing to convince anybody in town, Aaron went out and did some research on her own. Now, this included talking to professors at UCLA. She took water samples. She did some reading on articles about hexavalent chromium. And she started digging through local waterboard reports to figure out what was going on. Not waterboarding, just the waterboard. Water water. <laughs> the board made out of water, of course. No. Aquarium, <laughs> uh, here we come. <laughs> After having other professionals look through all of her research, it was clear that PG&E was pumping the water full of lethal chemicals and then sending out doctors to people for free in order to cover up the whole situation and to lie about the true cause of their cancer. So that's why they were paying for the doctors. They were paying doctors to tell them there was nothing wrong with them. The doctors were on the PG&E payroll to cover up this whole incident, which is nuts. Scummy. Yes, very scummy. Also against any ethics code for any doctor anywhere to do this by yeah. the way completely against all their ethics codes so don't lie about cancer doctor and you people. can lose your license for that mm -hmm. so armed with all of her new information Erin Brockovich went back to Hinkley to show people how terribly they were actually being treated now it took a lot of hard work and determination from Erin but eventually she was able to convince enough people of PG&E's corruption that a lawsuit was actually filed on behalf of the town all the residents of the town were being represented in this case because of all the damages that PG&E had That's created dope. and there was like 900 dope, or so like, plaintiffs in this yeah, case it, it, it was, was pretty big, big. Now, the lawsuit ended up being a three-year-long battle between the town and the company, with PG&E doing everything in their power to claim innocence in the project. And the issue with the case, really, is that they had to prove that PG&E not only knew about hexavalent chromium, but knew all the dangers of it and were purposely doing yeah. it. And even that hexavalent chromium was bad. Because at that point, it was still arguable about whether it even caused cancer or not. Yeah, there wasn't a ton of information about it at the time. And so they had a really hard time fighting in this case. But in the end, they did win. Yes. And a settlement for $330 million was reached. And that is the largest sum paid out in a direct action lawsuit up in until In United that time. States history. That is an insane amount. That's Money. Dope. Mm -hmm. This wasn't the end of PG&E contaminating water, though, as many more lawsuits came in throughout the years, and they have paid hundreds of millions of dollars in total to thousands of affected people and still are providing support in bottled water to the people of Hinkley to this day. And, Hinkley, and there have been, it's not just like there's been other lawsuits, there have been multi-million dollar lawsuits. Yeah. Like yeah. this company has lost millions of dollars, almost probably a half a billion dollars. And Hinkley itself has basically turned into a ghost town because of everything that has been happening. Why would anyone want to live there? Yeah, like they know the water is contaminated and there's nothing they can do about it, really. Yeah. And so the population of Hinkley has slowly been falling over the years and it's turned into a complete wasteland, essentially. Contaminating water is not the only issue that PG&E has had over the years. They have... They have an enormous track record of sketchy business and lawsuits. Just recently, they actually got sued again for causing a huge gas line explosion. And they are currently on probation until 2022. And they had to serve 10,000 hours of community service. 
Isn't that wild? <laughs> that sounds like a punishment you'd give to like a student skipping class, just on a much bigger level. Yeah, yeah. like, like if the whole service. entire state skipped class at yeah. the same time. So PG and E ran into PG and E ran into a lot of other lawsuits too, and they had ones that their employees hit other people with cars. And that was a huge issue. That's not funny, but that's a little funny. The way that they dug their power lines and didn't care for them at all, they ended up causing two firefighters to die while trying to put out the fires of their negligence. That's not funny. No. Their business practices are just terrible. In a nutshell, they suck. They suck. It really sounds just like you gave... uh... Sid from Toy Story, just a job, and you're like, hey, here's the drills, go play with them. <laughs> All right, that's Do what you want. That's the Toy end Story. of PG and E, but we're going to move on to Hampton, Florida. So, the town of Hampton, Florida is honest to God, nothing special. Absolutely nothing special about it for almost all of its history. People in Hampton would disagree with you. No, I don't I, think they would. I don't they think would. they would. Just wait. <laughs> there is nothing unique at all about Hampton. It has never made the news. Nobody ever cared about it one bit. And Hampton also barely has any history as it was only founded in 1925. Y'all are flaming up this town. I feel bad. <laughs> they deserve it. Hold they on. Really is out for Hampton. <laughs> <laughs> However, there was a very brief period in time where this town of only 500 people, only one square mile of land. It's, this town is one square mile large. <laughs> but like, That's not big at all. No. That's like a... But for one, that's like our campus. Yeah. <laughs> but for one brief instance, they made nationwide headlines, and for all the wrong reasons. Now, Hampton suffered from the problem that many small towns suffer from. I'm from a small town myself, so I can really attest to this. But the issue in small towns is that nothing ever changes in them. The same person has been mayor in my town for my entire life, and it is a huge deal if any like board of education members change, if anything changes at all. And the town council might as well be a joke. The heart of the issue is that. Nobody cares. Nobody gives a shit. Everyone's just yeah. complacent. They're it's like, you know tiny. what? It's fine. Yeah. Who cares? In my town, we all know who's in power, and they just keep it. And people accept it as fact. It's just nobody gives a shit, and nothing ever changes. Elections don't matter. Any laws they want to pass, just pass like that. And the people who have power, they keep it. Now, these are the same problems that Hampton was facing in the 90s. And on top of this, the town was losing too much money to stay afloat for much longer. With the financial clock ticking down on the mayor and others, a plan was developed to solve all of their problems. You see, the one saving grace that Hampton had is that it happened to be close to the highway US 301, which is a major road, and Hampton was on it between Gainesville and Jacksonville, so it got a lot of traffic. The mayor at the time, Jim Mitzel, worked with the police chief, John Hodges, to extend the town's border to just touch a quarter of a mile of US 301, and that became their gold mine. So the town border was just a square. <laughs> yeah. And now all of a sudden, because they decided to annex this land, it had this really long and thin rectangle shooting out of it, just touching US 301. It For made, a quarter of a mile. It made no sense at all, but there it was. The Hampton Police Department had control over this entire stretch of road, and they could write all the tickets they wanted, and my god, they went ape shit with it. The whole operation started off fairly small, as there was only one police officer in the department, but it was enough to pay some of the bills and expenses that the town had. While this was great for the town, it was a total pain in the ass for anyone driving down the stretch of road, and in 1995, AAA actually warned drivers that the area was a speed trap. Now, what's kind of interesting is also AAA, actually, because we think of them as just, if you get 
in an accident or something, you get a flat tire, they come and fix it. But AAA is actually like a whole driver's club. Yeah. And so they warn drivers about certain speed trap areas. That's and dope. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. I had no idea that it AAA... It pays to be a AAA member. It really does. the worst battery ever, though. AAA sucks. Double A's where it's at. That depends on oh who you ask, God. I think. Mm-mm. No, double A's are superior. Double A's are hot. Yeah, but if you have a remote that takes triple A's, double A's aren't really going to do you very remote. much. Okay, but they that's stupid. They should be double A's. Mm-hmm. Why are you guys persecuting me over batteries? Because <laughs> Anyway. Can. Let's persecute Hampton instead. This practice of, you know, people getting a huge amount of tickets on the stretch of highway continued for the next few years, and slowly but surely, the police force also kept growing. By 2010, the speed trap was out of control with 19 officers on the force. They went from 1 to 19, and their population did not change. Many of these officers were untrained, not qualified, and driving uninsured cars on the job. There's more to that, too, because it's not just that they didn't know what they were doing, that they weren't really even allowed to be doing this, but they were so dangerous when they did it, too. They would pull out in front of tractor trailers. They would cause... Well, that's your own damn fault. They would cause so much havoc on this strip of road that people were terrified to drive through it. Absolutely terrified. Good Lord. I still can't believe they started out with one officer. Mm -hmm. But the money they were raking in was insane. In the 2009-2010 fiscal year, tickets brought in $170,000. The next year brought $234,000. Damn. And from 2011 to 2012 was 211000 Jeez. That As, is nutty money. Yeah. Nutty. Crazy. Those are from speeding tickets. I did some math, too, and the $234,000, if that was divided up equally among all the townspeople in that year, they each would have gotten about $500, which that's not a ton of money, but that's nothing to sneeze about either. Yeah, I'd yeah, take $500. Exactly. So as a driver, this was crazy, but for the people living in Hampton, it was supposed to be awesome. Like, this town was about to go under from debt, and now they're rolling in cash. Or at least they were supposed to be. However, (laughs) even after all the money was coming in from these traffic tickets, the town's government was still overspending and falling deeper into debt. Mm -hmm. In May 2013, State Senator Rob Bradley and State Representative Charles Van Zant decided that enough was enough and they launched an official audit on the town of Hampton. Right off the bat, though, they ran into some issues, mainly with getting in contact with the mayor. And that was because Mayor Barry Moore was in jail for selling drugs. Yep, he yeah. sold drugs to an undercover agent and got caught. That's hilarious. Genius. They're, they're mayor. They're mayor. I'm going to repeat that. The mayor, John <laughs> of, mayor. The town. Of, of Hampton is in jail for, for selling, selling drugs, drugs to an undercover police officer. Like, how stupid can you oh, be? Wait, from God. Hampton? I don't know, probably. That'd be hilarious. I don't know. It's just some I have no clue. Yeah, That's so funny. So now we're doing an audit on the town of Hampton. Mm-hmm. Back to the, the task at hand. They found that a drug dealing mayor was actually the least of this town's issue, if you could believe it. The big question that investigators and the townspeople wanted to know was, where is all this money going? I'm sure nobody's surprised to hear this, but it went directly to the police chief, city council, and other people involved in the government. Hookers and blow. S- some <laughs> of their excuses were absolutely fantastic. We're going to get into them, but I'm oh my God, now. it's so fucking funny. In total, the audit found 31 violations, including a ton of personal expenses, nepotism, and a complete failure to keep any records. In fact, when asked to produce financial records about the town, the city manager said that the records had been lost in a car crash, though there was no evidence that this crash ever even happened. Yeah, they just said that, you know, oh, they they were lost in a car crash. And they're like, okay, when was the car crash? 
<laughs> Simple. It didn't happen. There was. It didn't happen at all. And that, that we lo- you put all your records in one car. <laughs> like what? Are you yeah, talking in case you about? need them, we'll just trade them out. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Uh, the biggest monetary charge occurred right across from City Hall at the BP gas station, where $132,000 in personal gas charges were paid for with city funds. So any city officials that were just driving their cars around, they charged Stopped the taxpayers for it. Yep. <laughs> and it was right across the road from City Hall, too. Like, City Hall, BP. You got to flex on them. You got to remind them who's in charge. Uh-huh. <laughs> After all of these discoveries came out, Rob Bradley and Charles Van Zant gave the town 30 days to clean up their act or the town would be dissolved. Which, I mean, that kind of sounds like a big deal, but remember, there's, like, not many people here. It's one square mile. It wouldn't take a whole lot to just wipe this place right off the map. And it's also not like if their town got dissolved that all their homes would be burned to the ground or something. (laughs) Like, they would just get They were going to level this entire town. (laughs) If the town got dissolved, it would have just gotten absorbed by another nearby town. But still, losing your township, that's a big deal. Especially when you're... Just pieces of shit. Nobody thought that this town could be saved, but the citizens of Hampton amazingly rallied together and took matters into their own hands. The entire city council was replaced along with the mayor. People filled in any job they could and worked like crazy for 30 days to save their town. The New Hampton government gave the land along US 301 back, disbanded the police force, and kept squeaky clean documents, and against all odds it worked. Hampton was saved. Hampton today is still an unremarkable town with nothing interesting going on, but it's no longer the corruption-filled speed trap that it used to be. So that's good. Just a little happy ending. And like, I, I wanna, I wanna give a little bit of a little bit of mercy to Hampton here because they were not the only town in this area that did it. There were two other towns nearby that they kind of took inspiration from for this idea, but they were the ones that kind of turned it up to eleven. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now it is time, the moment you've all been waiting for. The main event. For the huge story on Christine Collins and the Wineville Chicken Coop murders. Ooh. This is a very long story, so if you get lost or confused at any point, feel free to rewind or send us messages and we'll clarify stuff for you. That'd be kind of Hell cool yeah. Too. Or both. Go or both. grab a cup of coffee, get some popcorn, sit down and shut up. We got a lot to do. This is, is going to fucking rock your world. All right. Stay focused. Christine Collins was born on December 14th, 1888 in Los Angeles, and she started her life off fantastic by marrying a convicted convict. Hell yes. A convicted convict? Oh, yes. (laughs) I want to shoot myself. (laughs) Okay, but it's like, he's a for real convict. A felon. He's not not an accused convict. Convicted, that bitch. Right into the ground. <laughs> okay, see, this is why I'm a music major, because <laughs> I don't know anything. I love how you looked at me for a second, like, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't notice. All right, so Christine Collins and her convicted convict, <laughs> the two of them had a son, Walter Collins, who was born in September 1918. Little Walter. Fucking when Walter, Walter was born, though, his father was out of the picture. He could have been in prison, but he also could have been kicked out by Christine because she was not a huge fan of his criminal life, and she kind of gave him the boot at one point. Oh, damn. Mm-hmm. It's like he shouldn't have married so, him. <laughs> yeah, we're not really sure if he was just, like, a past criminal or, like, if he was actually in jail at this time. I have a sneaking suspicion that he was just kicked out. 
but, but he did end up going back to jail. Yes, at some he, point. he like, was he in was pri- and out of jail. He was in prison while Walter was a young kid. So Aww. yeah. Poor Walter. Walter and Christine had a good life in the suburbs of LA. There isn't any information to say that they didn't have a good life. So they like they must have been doing pretty well. <laughs> like Glass I said earlier, cold. they're just freaking normal people. Yeah. Like we couldn't find any information about them because they didn't do anything extraordinary. They were just living their lives. Christine went to work, Walter went to school, and that was that. And the husband went to jail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> One, two, three, perfect family. However, <laughs> the American <I'm>... dream. <laughs> On March 10th, I hate to spoil your American dream. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) On March 10th, 1928, their world would be changed forever. In the afternoon on March 10th, Christine gave Walter some money to go see a movie and went about her day not having a worry in the world about her son because, again, they were normal people. Nothing happened to them. And back in the 20s, you told your kids to fuck off for the day, and as long as they were back when the streetlights turned on, they were golden. Like, nobody expected anything bad to happen. Kids ran around the neighborhood all day long, all the time. All they did was throw rocks at shit and, like... Yeah, <laughs> like they weren't gonna do anything bad. That's Build forts American and dream, stuff. Honestly, yeah, they I don't throw rocks, throw rocks and, shit. and shit. So Christine, no worries about Walter, and she had no reason to be worried either. This isn't a negligent mother thing. This is just normal. Everybody did this. When Christine returned home that night, though, Walter was nowhere to be found. She went into a panic as any mother would and did everything in her ability to find her missing son. When her neighbors had no information about him, she called the police department. Because it's reasonable to assume that, like, her neighbors would at least have seen him around the neighborhood. Yeah. If, if that's where he was, if he was yeah. outside playing with their kids, somebody would have that's seen him. That's another reason people didn't care so much that, like, back in the day, because everyone knew each other as neighbors. Yeah, every, yeah. everybody was still a family, yeah. you know? You, you could rely on your neighbors. So, Christine calls the police department. Unfortunately, though, she lives in the jurisdiction of the Los Angeles Police Department. Hell yes. Also known as... (laughs) The shittiest police department on planet Earth. In the history of... Always. (laughs) Always. <laughs> now, if you remember back to season one, episode one, we talked about the Black Dahlia case. All the way back at the very beginning. Wow. Don't go listen to it if you haven't. Just no, it's, it's still our most it. listened to episode, and you guys, like, please give us another chance. Like, <laughs> I think most people listen to that, and they're like, oh, no. It's one of these podcasts. Yeah. So in the Black Dahlia case, the LAPD completely fucking failed. And so Shocker. these are the capable hands that young Walter's <laughs> life is now in. <laughs> Christine alerted the LAPD, but they did everything in their power to give the absolute minimum effort. Kind of like Ethan and everything he does. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> Maximum video effort. Games pretty well. He puts a ton of effort into watching anime and playing video games. <laughs> that shit slaps and makes me happy. Don't judge. Fair, you know, fair enough. So while Christine was keeping on their asses constantly, trying to get any information at all, the LAPD and more importantly, their chief of police, J.J. Jones, kept pushing her off. Here's a little spoiler alert for you. J.J. Jones is the biggest douchebag that has ever walked the face of the earth. He's a dick. He's horrible. An absolute dick. The first two J's stand for just a jerking. <laughs> so just jerking Jones. <laughs> he, he was not going to stop Christine, though. Mm-mm. She is... She's a badass, and she is pushing for this. She's going to get her fucking son back. Uh, she contacted everybody that she could, including multiple state agencies, called people outside of the state. She contacted local community members, and one of them was Reverend Gustav Briegleb. Now, Reverend Briegleb was a minister at a local Presbyterian church, but he was also a radio commentator who called out the LAPD for all of their bullshit and was a huge help in getting the word out about Christine and Walter. Savage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Following He's a cool the, dude. He is a very cool dude. 
Following the immense pressure from Christine, Reverend Breegleb, and the community, the LAPD started working just a tiny bit harder. Just a tiny bit more. They were just like, and we're doing things, but <laughs> not steps. actually, yeah, Baby that's steps. true. And they, in quotes, uh, launched a nationwide manhunt. The thing is, Christine already did all the work that they now were doing. All they did was contacted other state agencies, which Christine was already doing. She would literally take her breaks at work to call, like, missing child, like, agencies in other states the LAPD. To ask if anybody had seen any kids that matched his description. <sighs> the LAPD did nothing that Christine wasn't already doing, which is and just which so And which was the LAPD's job in the first place. Yeah. Christine never should have had to do that. So hope was starting to be lost until August 4th, 1928, when miraculously Walter turned up in DeKalb, Illinois, over 2,000 miles away. Quite a long way for a nine-year-old boy to be traveled. And a walk. Mm. Yeah, sure. I, I bet he walked 2,000 miles. He must have miles. mad calves after that. <laughs> In what, five months? Yeah. <laughs> he walked 2,000 miles. Now, the Illinois police got in contact with the LAPD, who then told Christine. So Christine and Walter, they started sending letters and pictures back and forth to confirm that it actually was Walter, and it was him. And soon, a date was set for his return. Now, this was a huge deal for the LAPD. For the past couple of months, their name was getting dragged through the mud with this case. Deserved. And they never had a good record to begin with, anyway. Deserved. Their name was being dragged through the mud, period. <laughs> <laughs> so solving this case and returning Walter was going to be a godsend to their and department. And you better believe they were going to milk this good PR for all oh, it was worth. Oh, yeah, baby. It's It was so important to the department and J.J. Jones specifically because mm-hmm. his ass was on the line. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, your ass is on the line, Mr. Jones. <laughs> JJ, if that is your real name. (laughs) This was so important that JJ called all the press, started a huge media frenzy about the reunion, and tons of reporters and photographers showed up on the day to see the happy family. Wowie wow. Yeah. So the day is here. It is August 18th, five months after Walter had gone missing, and he was finally home again. Yay. Except. No. (laughs) (laughs) There was a little, little teensy-weensy problem. A little, a little small issue when Walter walked off the train. Uh, it wasn't Walter Collins. Not one bit. When Christine laid eyes on the boy that was supposed to be her son, her world shattered all over again as she clearly saw that this was not her son. Christine told J.J. Jones and the other officers that there must have been a mistake, but they were not taking no for an answer. In fact, J.J. Jones told Christine to try the boy out. That is a direct quotation out of this douchebag's mouth and take him home anyway. Even though Christine knew this wasn't her son and said he didn't even look like Walter, J.J. Jones kept insisting that he just looked different because of the stress of the last five months. Bullshit. Exactly. At this point, Christine just gave up fighting. She had already been fighting the LAPD for months and she was over it. So Christine posed for pictures and answered a couple questions, but she didn't exactly do it with the best of spirits. Can you imagine the heartbreak, though, thinking that your son was finally home, something you've been pouring every every ounce minute of your soul to find him and then the train door opens and out walks this random kid also yeah. weren't they like sending pictures back so here's the thing i've seen pictures of the two boys they do look similar and keep in mind this is the 20s that's fair the quality of the photographs probably isn't that great like so. it's, it's decent, but it's not enough to really tell them apart because yeah. they did look similar. Yeah, but, but in person, a mother knows her son. Oh, yeah, a mother absolutely. knows. 
a mother. And apparently other people noticed too, but J.J. Yeah. Jones was not one of those people. <laughs> well, J.J., this was his case. He fucking solved it. It was done. This was Walter Collins. She can go suck it up no matter what. His case was done, though. He solved it. He's J.J. fucking Jones. <laughs> yeah. So Christine did um, end up taking this boy home, but I can only imagine how awkward their interactions must have been. Christine knew that he wasn't Walter, and he knew that he wasn't Walter, but he wouldn't admit it for the life of him, and he kept trying to live his life as Walter. How weird must that be? Like, to if, if be I, somebody else. If I went back to the dorm room one day and just started saying, hey, what's up, guys? It's Ethan. And then like, everybody would like, no, you're not Ethan. And I'm go, yeah, I'm Ethan. Yeah. And then I just disappeared. I think that'd be a little sketchy. Like, ah, I can't imagine how this kid just did it. How do you say that you're Walter Collins when you're so obviously well, not? Well, I guess when you're a missing child and you're probably in the, in, you know, in the 20s, probably abandoned, and someone gives you the possibility for well, a home, you're going to take it. I can't. We'll give you the story on him in a, in a little bit. We have a story confirmed. Oh, oh, absolutely. There's a story. Never mind. Yeah. Fuck that yeah. kid. So... <laughs> Christine was a bad bitch, and she already knew that she wasn't going to stop until and she, she found her son. Every night, no, she did for not. Information, no, no. she did <laughs> She went to local community members who could testify that the boy was not Walter. She went to his dentist to compare their teeth, and shocker, they weren't a match. Christine had all of the evidence on her side, but if you think any of that mattered, then you clearly don't know the LAPD. From the perspective of the LAPD and J.J. Jones, Christine Collins was wrecking their perfect reunion and their amazing solved case, and she needed to go. So when they heard that Christine Collins was gathering all of this evidence and telling the media and the community, they, they were all rallying around her, something had to be done. Jones called Christine into the police station on September 8th to discuss the case, but this was never his intention. Although Christine presented her evidence and was completely right, Jones shut her down, calling her delusional, a bad mother, said she didn't even want to have a son, and accused her of making this up to humiliate the police department. So he literally said to her, like, I think that you enjoyed these last few months you had without your son, and now that he's back, you're just trying to absolve your responsibility as a mother. Yeah, Christine Collins, the absolute party animal that she was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dude, she definitely Who didn't spend any of her personal time searching for her son is, like, the only thing she ever did. Yeah. Totally just wanted to get rid of him. Nah, she's just a bad mom. Just a... Totally. Garbage. She just genuinely hates the LAPD that much. That's, yeah, that's all she, this she is, did, honestly. But... She really just wants them to have <laughs> yeah, reputation. <laughs> this is different, though. So, apparently berating her wasn't enough. He wanted her gone. Jones decided the best way to make Christine go away was to lock her up. So, using the shady and corrupt Code 12, Jones sent Christine Collins to the Los Angeles County Hospital Psychiatric Ward. Now, Code 12 was basically the police force's way of taking care of anyone who was a bother to them, and they could send anyone to the ward without a warrant and no questions were asked. So with an absolute snap of his fingers, she disappeared. This innocent woman is she goes to locked the up in ward. the loony bin. Yo. Yeah. And it was literally like in the code, it's written that it's literally anyone who is inconvenient to the police department. They can just send away. Anyone that is being disruptive nope. or inconvenient. No you questions can just ship asked, them off. nothing. Completely legal. We didn't know many of the details about what happened to Christine while she was in the psych ward, but I can't imagine that anything really good happened. Regardless, though, I can't imagine that she sat around and painted pictures while they gave just her free pizza. Just being falsely imprisoned alone must have been a nightmare. Oh, God, yeah. Well, Can it's you... a known fact Even that, if like, they didn't do anything to her. It's a known fact that, like, psych wards and, like, asylums and shit in the 20s were fucked. Oh, yeah. they were like, awful. They... Because everything they thought they were doing to better people was literally just like... Torture. Yeah. Especially one that was set up by the police, essentially as a political prison. So yeah. for using That's logic, basically what this is. Probably it shit probably went down. did happen. It was... I'm sure it was awful. Oh, my God. 
So, while Christine was in the psych ward, a handwriting expert came in and tested Walter's writing samples against the writing from this random kid, and, no shit, they weren't a match. <gasps> yeah, can you believe shocker, it? Shocker, shocker. So, I'm floored. <laughs> the random boy, he wrote his R's in a way that was only found in Illinois. It Nobody wrote their R's Most like that. Most certainly was not taught in California. No. Now, with all of this evidence mounting up against the kid, he eventually confessed on September 19th that he was not Walter Collins, duh, uh-huh. but he was actually Arthur Hutchins Jr. from Iowa. Now, Arthur's story is fucking crazy. This shit is mental, and you cannot make this up mm-hmm. at all. So, Arthur was born in Iowa. His mother died when he was young, and his father didn't give a single fuck about him. Not, not a great start, I'll have to admit. Uh-huh. Not a great start for the kid. And when his father remarried, his stepmother was cruel and cold-hearted. Gotta love an evil stepmom. Arthur was rebellious, though, and he was caught for stealing in the summer of 1928 and decided to run away from the police and his home life. So not only was this young kid, like, raised in a tough household, but he's also stealing. Yeah. And then He's just a delinquent. He runs away from home. Well, nothing good happens when your parents are shit. Yeah, uh. that's true. Arthur started hitchhiking around and worked any job he could while he was just 12 years old. He's hitchhiking around this around states, just working random jobs at 12 years old. One day, while Arthur was stopped in a diner in Illinois, a person there told him that he resembled this missing kid named Walter Collins from California. So this idea started getting into his head that if he could convince people that he was Walter Collins, he could go to California. He could get away from his home life, and seemingly most importantly to him, he could meet his favorite movie star, Tom Mix. Who, who from what we gathered, was in a lot of cowboy movies. <laughs> also, before anything, I just want to just paint a picture of just this kid sitting in like a, just a diner somewhere, and some random guy just eating his pie, drinking coffee, walks up to the kid and goes, yeah, there's a kid on a wanted poster, kind of look like him. And then just walks away, and it's like, really? Well, I don't know. I imagine this kid, like, sitting at the at the bar in, like, a diner drinking a black <laughs> coffee, and the waitress who's smoking a cigarette is like, hey, you look like that Walter Collins kid. And he's like, hmm. He has a handlebar, too. Way, too, like, <laughs> way too wise for his years. But that also kind of goes to show that they genuinely did look similar if yeah, people, like people were, were mistaking, mistaking them. For him. So it's got some evidence behind it that he kind of, there was at least a passing resemblance to Walter Collins. Oh, absolutely. Or everyone was just blind. I doubt <laughs> that. <laughs> now, at first, I thought there was no way in hell that this kid managed to pull this off on his own. But after we started putting some more pieces together, I genuinely think that Arthur Hutchins did this whole story on his own just to get to California. So Arthur is clearly a pretty smart kid. And he's managed to make his way through multiple states on his own and above all else, the kid is a survivor. He takes care of number one, and that is There's Arthur no Hutchins Jr. Oh, no. <laughs> so I'm guessing that after the person in the diner told him that he looked like Walter Collins, he did a little bit of digging in the papers just to get enough information to build a plausible story and learn about Walter. And then he went and turned himself into the local police station. The police didn't even come across him. He went to them when he was ready. So it's not like they were like, hey, who are you? And he's like, I'm Walter Collins. He literally went to them and was like, hey, I'm Walter Collins. Like, he it, he wasn't put on the spot. He, he was prepared. Shit. He was yeah. you know, blackboard and just... 
lines everywhere. Once the police in Illinois got their hands on him, they could not believe their luck. This was a nationwide story. Picture one of the it. biggest stories in the country. And now Walter Collins shows up to them? So right now, this local police station that has absolutely nothing going for them is about to solve the biggest case in the country right now. It's basically equivalent to, like, you know when, like, that Powerball is, like, at almost a billion dollars and, like, the gas station that sells the winning numbers all of a sudden is, like, a super big deal? It's basically like that. They did nothing, and yet this publicity just fell into their hands. Yeah. Not, they were thrilled. Not only did, were they incredibly <sighs> lucky, they were about to be the heroes of the mm-hmm. day when they returned this kid to L.A. Like, this was going to make their careers so the police in Illinois completely rushed this process along because they like, oh, yeah, we got Walter Collins for oh, yeah. sure. Absolutely. So they didn't take any. Off you go. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't take any time to actually care about the case or anything. They just shoved him off to L.A. as soon as was convenient for them. Put him yeah. in a barrel, put a tube in it, kicked him in the river and was like, you'll be there soon. Don't worry about the kid. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, Arthur got his wish. He was on his way to California and he was going to go meet Tom Mix. Yay. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, he wasn't Walter Collins, <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> which is still not a good thing. <laughs> Boo. After learning about this insane story and having a confession that Arthur was not Walter, Christine had to be released from the psych ward. They had nothing keeping her there anymore. The reason they put her in there, like the official report, is that she was delusional and, and claiming... didn't recognize her son. Yeah, but she was right, obviously, Balls. but now they had proof that she was right. So Christine gets out and she filed multiple complaints for wrongful imprisonment, mm-hmm. imprisonment, among other things, which, yeah, she was wrongfully yeah, imprisoned. That's facts. While it was sad that the search for Walter was essentially back to square one now, you know, Arthur wasn't Walter and so they didn't have anything anymore. A new case came into the LAPD that completely shook the entire community and contained possible clues about the whereabouts of Walter. In late August, the LAPD received a phone call from Canadian officials reporting that a young Canadian boy named Sanford Clark was being held against his will at Northcott Ranch, a chicken farm in Wineville, California. Now, that doesn't really answer anything for you, does it? (laughs) So what the fuck is Northcott Ranch, right? And how does it have anything to do... What the hell does it have to do with Walter? ...with Walter Collins? Also, what are the Canadians doing? Mmm... To get all of these answers, we're going to have to go back to 1924 with a man named Gordon Northcott. Bullshit. Why is that bullshit? I was just traveling too much. It's four years. Oh, no. Four. You can count that on one hand, even <laughs> if you were missing a thumb. That's a bold statement. <laughs> Continue. Okay. <laughs> so... Gordon Northcott, he was born in Canada on November 9th, 1906, but he moved with his mother and father to Los Angeles in 1924. In 1926, Gordon, he decided to build a chicken farm in Wineville, California, and he got some help from his father and his 13-year-old nephew named Sanford Clark. And when it was done, they named it the Northcott Ranch, which is nice, you know? Appropriately named. Fairly easy story. Sanford, he was Canadian, too, and... (gasps) He wasn't, but he didn't live in California. Yeah. He was just, just there to help, so, so he thought. He had to go back to Canada at some point, right? You know, yeah. his visa was going to expire. He had to go back. Which is home, yeah. But Gordon started to sexually abuse him and forced him to stay, threatening that he would kill him if he tried to escape. 
Gordon went down. Took a sinister turn. (laughs) Yeah. Gordon started going down an even darker path, though. And in 1928, things got very serious. On February 2nd, 1928, Gordon forced Sanford to help him attack their ranch hand, Alvin Gothia. And Gordon shot Gothia through the heart with a 22 caliber rifle, then beheaded him and forced Sanford to help him burn and crush the skull. For reference, this is like a child, basically. He was like a preteen. He, he was, wasn't very old. He was, what, 15 He at was the time? probably about Sanford. No, I mean Alvin Gathea. Oh, yeah, he yeah. He was probably about Sanford's age. Yeah, Alvin was a young kid, too. And they shot him through the heart, beheaded him, and then crushed and burned his skull. Now, I'm guessing that... Because a lot of the time, his name is Alvin Gathea isn't even confirmed. But a lot of the uh, court reports refer to him as the headless Mexican. So... I'm thinking that maybe he might have been, like, an undocumented immigrant, and that's why they didn't actually have a a name name for him. But this is the best name that we could find, and it it came up a lot. So we're pretty Mm -hmm. sure that this is probably as accurate as it gets. So after absolutely brutalizing this poor kid, they dumped the headless body on the side of the road later that night, which is, oh, my God, that's just so disrespectful. It is disrespectful. You're right. Now, for reference, about a month after this is when Walter Collins goes missing. But authorities didn't make any connection between the two cases because it... They were completely. As far as they knew, that headless body was a completely isolated event. They had no idea. It was just another homicide. And not to mention, they didn't give a shit anyway. That's true. (laughs) To be fair, they didn't even care. (laughs) It's not like they were all that concerned. On May 16th, two brothers, Nelson and Louis Winslow, 10 and 12 years old respectively, they also went missing on their way home to Pomona from the Model Yacht Club. Talk Where about was their security. Talk about <laughs> <laughs> so right. what? Talk about fucking rich white kids. Am I right? Privilege. It's like those Snapchat stories that have like all the the really rich white kids that have the private jets. Rich they're like, boy check. Yeah, it's like oh my daddy bought me a Jaguar instead of a Bentley. <laughs> fucking shut up. Nobody gives a shit. Pound sand, <laughs> Timothy. Jaguar. Jaguar. So the parents of the Winslow boys, they claim to have received very strange letters from their children. One saying that they were running away to Mexico. Another one saying that they were going to stay away as long as needed so they could become famous. All I could think of was that vine of the little girl that's like, hey, I want to be famous. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) I love that. All this time, Sanford was actually keeping in contact with his family in Canada, writing letters back and forth. But he didn't mention any of the horrible deeds that he had been witnessed and been forced into. But his sister, Jessie, was a little smarter than your average bear. She knows her brother. She knows what's up. She noticed that something was definitely wrong. And she decided to go and check on her brother in August of 1928. He hit her with them one word answers. Yeah, probably. (laughs) I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Male. While at the ranch, Jesse and Sanford were never left alone together, and Gordon was very careful to keep any information from slipping. One night, though, Gordon fell asleep, and Sanford was finally able to tell Jesse about what was actually happening at the ranch. Jesse quickly returned home and told her mother the horrifying truth, and she proceeded to call Canadian authorities to report the crime. Which makes sense. They live in Canada, so, you know, you would yeah. call your authorities, who are Canadian. Canadian, yeah. also. So the LAPD receives this information about a possible mass murder ranch, and instead of sending out a task force to get the information about the murders, they instead push it off to immigration services and tell them to deal with it because the Canadian kid is there. And he's obviously the biggest problem that we have. Of course. And remember, the LAPD does not give a shit. 
They don't care. So yeah. why is it their problem anyway? It doesn't even matter. On August 31st, two immigration officers went out to the ranch, and when Gordon saw them coming, he and his mother fled to the woods and told Sanford to stall them or he would shoot him. Sanford talked to the agents for over two hours before finally telling them that he was in danger, and they got him out of there. Once Sanford was in police custody, he revealed the truth to the police about who were totally stunned by this information. Sanford told them that Gordon drove around the L.A. area looking for young boys on their own and that he would kidnap them, lock them up in the chicken coop and abuse them and then eventually kill them, usually with an axe. It wasn't just Gordon in on it, though. Gordon's mother, Sarah Louise, also participated in the killings. During these interviews, Sanford was able to identify some of the boys that had been at the ranch, including the Winslow brothers and possibly Walter Collins. While Sanford was giving the police information, Gordon and his mother were fleeing to Canada, though their escape didn't last for long. On September 20th, Gordon and his mother were captured in a town not too far north of the Canadian border. While investigators visited the ranch, they found evidence to support Sanford's claims, including a Pomona Public Library book belonging to one of the Winslow brothers, clothing that was identified to also belonging to the Winslow brothers, and a note that they had written to their parents. There was undeniable proof that they had definitely been there. On another return visit, a collection of bones was dug up right where Sanford said it would be, though it wasn't enough to complete like a full skeleton. In a few cabins that Gordon owned, investigators also found axes with blood and human hair on them. And in the fateful chicken coop, police found graves with bones, quicklime used to dissolve bodies, a mattress soaked with blood, and a twenty-two caliber rifle with bullets that matched what Alvin Gothia was killed with. There were also multiple other pieces of evidence around the ranch that suggested other boys had been there beside the four that Sanford testified to, including several bones scattered around everywhere, which pathologists confirmed belonged to young boys. Unfortunately, DNA is not what it once w- or what it was then, so they didn't have any like way to prove who it was. They could just do like certain things, like you can tell by yeah. sometimes the size of bones, mm-hmm. the way they're shaped the age and the gender of who they came from. They also found pieces of farm equipment covered in blood and hair, a whistle, and a few Boy Scout badges. That's what I thought was interesting. None of the boys that we know of, Alvin Uthia, the Winslow boys, Walter, none of them were Boy Scouts. And so somebody else had to be there too. Which is what makes me think there was definitely more than four kids, but we'll get to that in a second. There was never any evidence recovered that specifically pertained to Walter Collins, though. The reason that police couldn't find any full skeletons is pretty gruesome. After killing the young boys, Gordon would either pour quicklime on them, which dissolves bones, or would light them on fire. While Sanford confessed to being part of the kidnappings and murders, it was clear to the police that he was obviously forced to do these acts under the threat of death and had no real guilt in the situation. So he went off, like, scot-free. They could tell he was just, like, he was another victim in the scenario yeah, just because he didn't get killed. It's yeah. not like if Sanford was on his own, he would have been doing this. Yeah, Sanford exactly. obviously had wanted no part in yeah. any of this. And but he, he was afraid for his life, and he was only 15 years yeah. old. He would have he been killed, and who's to say that Gordon wouldn't have... Like, he knew where the rest of his family lived. Who's to say that he wouldn't have gone up there and done some horrible things to the rest of Sanford's family? Exactly. In December of 1928, Gordon was brought back to the ranch by investigators where he verbally confessed to five murders, which is one more than Sanford had mentioned. While in jail, though, this number seemed to grow as Gordon also said the true number of murders could be as high as 20. Which in the end, oh, go ahead. I, I certainly wouldn't doubt that. No, absolutely not. Because it's kind of odd that there seems to be a lot of evidence pointing to tons and tons of bodies, but five is kind of the number that people settle on. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of strange. Like, in my opinion, I would think it was higher, but 
Who knows? It might be because it's better to like assume a, like a safer number than to say it was a lot more. Yeah. I mean, if you kill one person, you're still gonna get punished. Well, yeah. Oh if yeah. If you kill yeah. twenty, it's the same kind of deal, except yeah. like, oh, you get the death penalty twenty times. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> in the end, Gordon only confessed to one murder, and that was Alvin Gothia in writing. So he verbally confessed to five, but he actually wrote down, "I killed Alvin Gothia on February second. 1928 and i will plead not guilty or no i will plead guilty guilty. obviously (laughs) (laughs) gordon's mother sarah louise was also arrested for her crimes and she confessed to the murder of walter collins interesting fact though her story kept changing as she tried to take the blame off of gordon so honestly even though she said that she did it i honestly don't really think that she did I don't yeah. think she did anything there because are... she had like she was saying like oh no I did it don't punish Gordon and people like in her family testified she would do anything for him yeah including confess yeah. to murder there were a couple stories that Sanford told that kind of hinted that Sarah Louise could have like really been a part of this yeah but also you know who knows she also wasn't right in the head no she was so, she was wacky yeah. <laughs> Um, On December 31st, 1928, Sarah Louise pled guilty to the murder of Walter Collins and was given life in prison. Gordon Northcott's trial began in January of 1929, and he had an unlikely supporter, Christine Collins. Now, through this whole case that was being unraveled, Christine refused to believe that Walter was killed at the ranch because there was no forensic evidence to prove it at all. They had nothing actually placing Walter there besides hearsay. They knew kids died, but they didn't know who. Yeah, and there was nothing to say that Gordon Northcott and Sanford really knew who they were killing necessarily. And so that could have just been a name. Like, again, it was nationwide news and so that could have just been a name that they knew and they thought maybe it was walter who knows though christine actually ended up being on gordon's side because she wholeheartedly believed that he did not kill walter her son walter collins she not only thought that but she didn't even think walter was dead through all of this she was sure that walter was out there somewhere and so she supported gordon through his trial believed that he was innocent and even visited him in prison during the trial now, Christine's defense didn't really do much good, though, as Gordon's case was completely open and shut. Yeah. There was there was honestly no debating it. To add to his 0% chance of being found not guilty, Gordon fired four lawyers in a row and decided that he could defend himself. Of course. He'd be fine at yeah. it. At one point, Gordon was asking himself questions and then answering them in front of the court. So this means a fucking fruit loop. <laughs> Or he's the best lawyer no one's ever seen. Mr. North <laughs> Mr. Northcott, did you kill Walter Collins? Mr. Northcott, no, I did not. <laughs> no, what was it? Gordon on the stand? Yes, Mr. Northcott. It was like he switched back and forth. Can you forth. imagine the judge just sitting there going, what the it's fuck? It's like watching a tennis match where you're like looking uh, back uh, and forth uh, at the uh, same uh. person. Can you imagine to the point where like he has the point of like, objection, Your Honor, and Mr. Northcott overruled and just like not even calling. Objection. It's like, what are you doing? So Gordon thought that he did an amazing job. Uh-huh. He was thrilled with his own defense. But in the end, he was found guilty of three counts of murder and sentenced to execution by hanging. Oof. So he didn't do too good, wow. I don't think. Yeah. Barbaric way of doing it. Now, this whole thing was absolute torture for Christine Collins, mm-hmm. who still had no real closure on the fate of her son. There was still no, there was no proof that he was killed but she also had no idea where else he could be. And so she was just absolutely destroyed. 
While it is likely that Walter was kidnapped and murdered by Gordon Northcott, again, no evidence can place him there, so it, it was never confirmed. Yeah. Gordon had one last trick, though, and before his execution date, he asked Christine to meet with him so that he could tell her the truth about Walter. I just remembered, too, like, when you said one last trick, he did a lot to interfere in the investigation, too. Like, when he was in prison, he would draw maps and be like, this is where all the bodies are, and then the police would go out there, and there would be nothing. Yeah, like, he chase. would just lead them on wild goose chases all yeah, the time. they and, would like, just be digging holes in the desert with nothing there. So, yeah. Just to he was have bit, the last laugh. He was a bit of a shithead, if we're going to yeah. be honest, besides the fact that he was a mass murderer. <laughs> And child rapist. All right, all right, maybe I should stop laughing at Probably. that. Probably. <laughs> so Christine Collins goes to visit Gordon Northcott, who says, I've, you know, I'll finally tell you what really happened to Walter because he was going to get executed the yeah. next day anyway. So Christine arrives, but Gordon just is fucking lagging or something because he just keeps going, <laughs> I'm, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I didn't kill him, you know. So, so Christine expected, and he certainly lured her in there under the pretenses that she he was going to say so that she could have closure, I did it. I killed your son. This is where he is. Blah, blah, blah. Move on with your life. Because there, there was no point in him lying anymore either. He yeah. was already He's going to die no matter what. Yeah. He so, already killed other people, whether he killed Walter yeah. or not. Yeah. So Gordon just, he doesn't provide any helpful information. And Christine is right back to where she started having no clue where Walter is and no help from anybody about it. Gordon Northcott was hung on October 2nd, 1930, but the hanging didn't kill him right away. So when you're hung, you're supposed to fall, essentially, and just the impact from the rope and your mass is supposed to break your neck. This didn't happen to Gordon, though. What happened was when they dropped the, like, floor out from under him, his knees buckled, and so he kind of, like, loosened the slack himself. So he, like, and just kind of lowered, not, like, dropped. Pretty much, yeah. Like, he didn't fall with the force he was supposed to. Yeah. And so it didn't break his neck. So he hung there for 12 minutes, suffocating to death, which must have just given so many people so much satisfaction. <laughs> Probably. He also, he requested that he was blindfolded so that he couldn't see. He never wanted to see the gallows. Like, that was something he didn't want. And he just kept saying, like, his last words were, say a prayer for me. And, like, as he was, like, going up. And they when they were pushing him up the stairs, like, up to the platform, he was like, please don't push me. Please don't make me walk so fast. Yeah. So this man was just a bitch. <laughs> well, I mean, when you're facing your own death, no matter who you are, that's still scary. Yeah. But he it, deserved it. Yo, he 100% deserved it. But, you know, e- even <sighs> in that case, that's still a terrifying thing to face your own mortality. Yeah. He still fucking deserved it, though. Absolutely. So, Christine Collins, even though this whole trial is over, she has nothing on her son. And she's just completely lost in the world again. She has she has nothing going for her. Well, she did win a really big court case against the LAPD. And she won $168,000 in today's money. She never saw a penny of it. Never. She never got a cent of that money. And J.J. Jones, the police chief, was only suspended for four months. For everything that he did to this poor woman was suspended for four months. Like we said, douchebag. Christine Collins spent the rest of her life in court with the LAPD in search for her son until the day she died on December 8th, 1964. Now, most likely Walter Collins was killed at Northcott Ranch. But at this point, it's near impossible to prove it. And that's that's all we got. 
That's where we're leaving. That's how it ends. Holy shit. Right? I know that's a very unsatisfying ending, but... That just felt like a Nancy Drew novel on steroids. Yeah. (laughs) All the tracing back and, like, the... Yeah. That was insane. It was... That's a serious, like, Mm -hmm. beast of a story. So... Unfortunately, we had to kind of cut through some of the other stories to make way for that enormous one. I hope you guys thought it was worth it, because I certainly think Absolutely, it was. Absolutely, I think it was way worth it. Also, be on the lookout for a follow-through episode on Erin Brockovich, because we had to skip, like, all of her story. There's a movie on her, too, so... Yes, there is, which is where you know her, in case you've been wondering, I know that name. Yeah, the movie is called Erin Brockovich, yes. so that very, might be very where famous case. it um, Again, I made a follow-through episode on Hans Holbein recently, so if you haven't heard it yet, go give it a listen. It's only 13 minutes long, so just suck it up, go listen to it. Um, <laughs> we're going to have an episode out on Erin Brockovich out soon, hopefully, so that'll be cool, too. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Make sure you go check us out on Instagram, Rule of Three, 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 Facebook, The Rule of Three Podcast. Give us a review and a rating. Let us know what you thought of us. And goodbye, everybody. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. Guys.